What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. This week on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I pay tribute to Valentine's Day by playing our favorite unconventional love songs. Plus, we'll honor a fallen punk idol... Lux Interior. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. One of the biggest news stories of the last decade in the music industry has come down in the last couple of days. That is the merger between Live Nation, the biggest concert booking agency in North America, and Ticketmaster, the largest concert ticketing agency in America. They have vowed to merge to create a $6 billion company that will be known as Live Nation Entertainment. As a result, they would operate the majority of major concert venues in America, sell the tickets to events at those venues, and manage many of the artists who play there, artists like Christina Aguilera, Van Halen, The Eagles, Guns N' Roses, Jimmy Buffett, the list goes on. Jim, I can't think of a bigger news story in the last 10 years that will affect more consumers than this one. Absolutely not. Even though people may be glossing over and say, what do I care these big companies? We'll tell you why you should care. Let's give you a little bit of history first. Based in Beverly Hills, Live Nation spun off from the media giant Clear Channel Communications in 2005. They own billboards, they own radio uh, stations, and they own this concert promoter. Now they're out on their own. They own something like 80% of the music venues across the country. In the early 90s, they began buying up small regional promoters. There used to be 10 or 15 promoters across the country, you know, one in Cleveland and, and Bill Graham up in San Francisco, right? Some of the famous names of concert promotion. There remain a few independent regional promoters, but they've been a ruthless competitor, Live Nation, against those. In court, they've been quoted as saying, we want to crush, kill, and destroy the competition. (laughs) Meanwhile, Ticketmaster, which came together in the early 70s, back then there was some competition. Ticketron was another big company. It was an interesting idea. You pick up the phone, you buy tickets. Now, of course, it's on the computer. Ticketmaster, uh, one by one, drove its competitors out of business, and it became the source of controversy. In the early 90s, the Justice Department in the Clinton era began an investigation of the practice that Ticketmaster had of going to arenas, saying, you know, we'll sell all the tickets for your events, the monster truck rallies, the hockey games, and, and the concerts, but you can't let anybody else sell tickets at your place. This is kind of like a mafiosa tactic. You're with us or you're not doing business. The Justice Department looked into this for a year. In the process, they went to several musicians and said, do you have a problem with this? The Justice Department went to Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam didn't start the fight with Ticketmaster, but Pearl Jam had a problem. They had played here in Chicago, and they really resented the $5 Ticketmaster fee that was added (laughs) to their ticket. We laugh about that now, okay? It was a $15 ticket. It was $5 was added. Now we're at a point where Ticketmaster sometimes adds a maximum of 
50% to the cost of the ticket. A $100 ticket costs you $150 when you're done with Ticketmaster. That has made them, and Live Nation too, two of the most reviled names in the music industry. Absolutely, Jim. It's easy to see why Live Nation and Ticketmaster, and certainly their shareholders, would think this is a good idea. For one thing, it's going to cut out on the major competitor for each other. Live Nation had just started its own ticketing agency. Mm-hmm. Now it's no longer going to do that since it's folding in with Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster will just be handling the tickets. A couple of positive things that could result from this. Consumers may see less of that mad scramble onto the Internet to gain access to tickets. Those overloaded Ticketmaster websites at 10 on Saturday mornings when a big concert tour goes on sale, Bruce Springsteen or, or Guns N' Roses or Christina Aguilera, that may go away because the tickets will be sold over a longer period of time in more of a free open market auction type bidding process. What it also might mean is that the price of a ticket will be a little bit more transparent. In other words, if the price of the ticket is $100 or $50, that's what you're going to pay. You're not going to be paying service fees on top of that. The service fees will merely be folded into the price, but you'll at least know up front what you're going to pay. But I think the negatives for this deal, Jim, far outweigh the positives. Well, we've certainly done a lot of reporting on this, Greg, you and I, and we would offer an open invitation to the new executives of Live Nation Entertainment to come on this show and defend their practices, but that's down the road. Right now, the dynamic pricing model is not necessarily a good one. You know, you say it's like Priceline, okay, where people go on and they, they bid for empty hotel rooms and sometimes they get a bargain. However, what it means is the first hundred rows of an arena show are now always going to go to people who are bidding way above the average. Some people up in the rafters may get a bargain, a $50 ticket, they may get it for $30, but everybody else is going to pay $1,000 for the best seats. It's going to be a John Lennon universe, you know, <laughs> when he played for the Queen. Those of you in the cheap seats, clap your hands. The rest of you rattle your jewelry. Number two, the Ticketmaster name is dead because it's had so many years of bad publicity, but the practices are still there. As you said, it's going to be one ticket price now. $100 ticket is a $100 ticket. However, it used to be a $60 ticket with $40 fees. (laughs) At least you knew who to be mad at, right? (laughs) Number three, Live Nation Entertainment, owning so many venues and controlling ticketing there, right now, Ticketmaster sells tickets for a lot of the independent promoters that remain. Now they're going to be in the position of selling tickets for their own worst enemies. Will that continue, or will they use this opportunity to, again, their language, crush, kill, and destroy the competition? And finally, you know, with the same company managing the artists and the venues and handling all this other stuff like merchandising, you know, there's not going to be any options. If an artist wants to play for a lower price and a uniform ticket price, they are not going to necessarily have anywhere to go. Let's not forget that for two and a half years after Pearl Jam dared to speak out about Ticketmaster, they were then the biggest band in America, yet they only played one show in that entire time. They could not tour the United States of America because all the venues were controlled by Ticketmaster. This story is going to continue for many months, Jim. Already the Justice Department has said it is going to investigate the antitrust implications of this merger, and uh, U.S. Senator Charles Schumer and U.S. Representative Bill Pascrell have called upon the Obama Obama administration to block it. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes, but obviously not a done deal as yet, and we'll be following it closely in the next few months. Greg, more sad industry news to report. (laughs) Muzak Holdings, LLC, the makers of elevator music 
in America have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They owe somewhere between $100 million and $500 million, and they have assets of less than 50000 Yikes. It's, it's pretty sad. <laughs> this is a famous company. I think a lot of younger people may not realize this, but Muzak has existed since 1934. was then a very innovative idea. We're going to have very soothing music to pipe into offices, uh, dentists uh, and doctor's offices, big insurance companies, elevators, supermarkets, and it's going to be very calming and soothing and it'll lower everybody's blood pressure. We've all laughed at Muzak from time to time. You know, you hear a Ray Conniff strings recording of Gimme Shelter by the Stones (laughs) or something. I've heard Led Zeppelin Muzak. I've heard White Stripes Muzak. Sex Pistols? But, you know, they were a very powerful company for a very long time because they paid so much money to artists for for royalties. You know, if you had your song covered in a Muzak version, you made some money from ASCAP songwriting collectors. And they were very protective. From time to time, you or I would slip in the newspaper and say, you know, this new record sounds like a Muzak recording. And then you'd get the letter from their lawyer. (laughs) Do not use the copyrighted name of Muzak in vain. You know, it's like, ooh, 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 you can't get Muzak upset. But, you know, I don't know if they're going to make it through this. Tough times for everyone. And the Grammy for Album of the Year goes to Raising Sand, Robert Plant, and Alison Krauss. I'd like to uh, say I'm bewildered. In the old days, we would have called this selling out, but I think it's, it's a good way to spend the Sunday. The big winners at the 51st Grammy Awards were Robert Plant and Alison Krauss for that album Raising Sand that they did with T-Bone Burnett back in 2007 reaped five major Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year. Robert Plant apparently is as surprised as anyone that it, it, it reaped this <laughs> windfall of trophies uh, going up against people like Coldplay and Radiohead and Lil Wayne. The little record label that could, Rounder Records, founded back in the early 70s out of the Northeast, a big night for independent music. More than half of the winners at the Grammy Awards, more than half of the 110 trophies handed out were to independent music. And one of the artists we wanted to focus on, in part because we really hadn't given her due when her debut record came out last year, Adele, an artist out of the U.K. with a debut record named 19, winning Best New Artist. Yeah. Now, not always, Jim, has the Best New Artist been a sign of a burgeoning <laughs> career, uh, no, an indeed. indication of future stardom. But in this case, I think we've got a winner that uh, has some legs in terms of uh, career longevity. Yeah, we don't often spend a lot of time on the Grammys because the Grammys so often get everything wrong. <laughs> but I think this was actually one good award. This was, you know, not Christopher Cross winning Best New Artist. You know, Adele Laurie Blue Adkins was uh, 19 years old, appropriately, when her debut album, 19, came out. I don't know how we missed this. In fact, it was my wife who came to me and said, you know, you got to... Talk about this record. What's the matter with you? You slap me upside the head. <laughs> now I'm in love with Adele, but since it was Carmel who turned me on to it, I don't feel guilty. She is just this this bundle of personality, Greg. You know, I talked to her a couple of weeks ago. You know, I said, how, how do you, at 17, 18, fall in love with these deep, American R&B roots. It was a great story. She's this girl in England who was doing hair modeling for her cousin. Her cousin was a hairdresser and she would do all these different hairstyles for Adele and Adele would go to shows and they would enter competitions, right? And Adele was bored with the usual stuff that her cousin kept uh, doing and so she she went to an old record store and started digging through the crates and she was fascinated by these big cat eyes and wacky hairdos of Etta James, Mm -hmm. the great R&B artist and Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, 
she started doing her hair in this way. And that led her to listening to this music, falling in love with it, and realizing that she has one of the most tremendous voices that's really uh, surfaced on the pop scene in the last couple of years. We've heard a lot out of England, starting with Amy Winehouse, moving on to Duffy. Adele is sort of part of this school of uh, revisiting that 60s pop period just before the British invasion, you know, like Dusty Springfield, where you had British ingenues copying the American R&B sound. But I think that that Adele is really in a class of her own, that her, her songwriting and her voice is so much stronger. The big hit was Chasing Pavements. People probably know that song. And what an interesting thing. You know, she had broken up with this boy. She was heartbroken. She was walking the streets of London and suddenly realized, you know, I'm chasing after a shadow. Mm-hmm. The heck with this. I'm better than this. That was what Chasing Pavements was about. But really, every track on 19 is a winner. I'm with you, Jim. I think she's an artist that brings a fresh take to the sound that uh, Amy Winehouse and Duffy and Josh Stone and Corinne Bailey Ray popularized on the U.K. scene. Uh, what I like is the fact that that acoustic guitar is right alongside her voice on many of these tracks. She's a, she's a fine guitar player. The, the, uh, the sound of the, these records is much more intimate. She has a voice that is wise and mature beyond her years. I think there's a sense of longevity about this artist that I don't get from many other Best New Artist winners. So I'm with you. 19 is a hell of a record. Well, Grammys, I think you got one right for once. I'm sorry, Adele, that it took us so long to get around to your record. But hey, it's a buy it on the Sound Opinions Buy It Bird and Trash it scale from both of us. This is a track called Right as Rain by Adele on Sound Opinions. Who wants to be right as the rain is? You're listening to Sound Opinions. That is TV set from the Cramps, one of the classic singles from that band in its 1970s heyday. And and the reason we're playing it is uh, the very sad news that the lead singer of that band, Lux Interior, born Eric Lee Perkheiser, is dead at the age of 60. Some people said maybe 62. The date varies, depending on who you read. Well, I, I just thought he was immortal and unkillable. Well, there's the key point, Jim. Here is one of the great frontmen, one of the great singers, one of the great entertainers in rock history who did seem indestructible. 
the things that he would do to himself on stage made them absolutely memorable, and you always wondered, how did Lux survive that night? Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, yeah. he would put his body through all sorts of abuse, wore these transgender outfits on stage, high heels, vinyl, leather. He would bite the heads off microphones with regularity, spit them out mm-hmm. at the audience, put himself in bodily danger every night. Meanwhile, playing this madcap version of surf music, early rockabilly, garage rock that he called Psychobilly, and created it one of the most uh, memorable sounds and legacies in that CBGB's punk era of the late 70s, early 80s. The Cramps, one of the very best bands out of that scene, playing alongside Patti Smith, the Ramones, television, etc., and creating their own uh, peculiar version of punk, very much rooted in this early, more simple style of music. You know, they had fans like Alex Chilton producing their early singles, the great Memphis R&B singer, and uh, created a legacy that was going strong even to this day. I mean, uh, the Cramps never really stopped touring. Between uh, Lux, the front man, and Poison Ivy Rorschach, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Christy Wallace, the guitar player, flipping the script on that whole idea where it was the sexy female who was the front person in the punk rock band with the mysterious guitar player off to the side. Here, it was the male who was the sexy, vampy guy out front, and the mysterious guitar player was the female half of the combination. One of the most memorable stage presences, entertainers in the history of rock and roll. I put him right alongside Iggy Pop and Jesus Lizard's David Yao as sure. the most entertaining frontman I have ever seen. But there's still some great recorded music to listen to as well. That early stuff is unbeatable. Here is Human Fly from the Cramps on Sound Opinions in tribute to Lux Interior, dead at the age of 60. When I'm a human fly, I've been in a while. I say buff, That is the Cramps Human Fly on Sound Opinions, R.I.P. Lux Interior. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Greg and I are going to honor Valentine's Day the Sound Opinions way by playing our favorite unconventional love songs.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is uh, Mickey and Sylvia with Love is Strange setting the mood for our latest edition of uh, our Valentine's Day show. (laughs) Jim, we have, uh, in the history of Sound Opinions, we have bandied about various incarnations of love songs. The sexy love song, the love stinks love songs. Uh, We had uh, Robbie Folks and Donna Folks in a live performance Mm -hmm. helping us herald the arrival of Valentine's Day. But today we want to do something a little bit more twisted than usual, and that's saying a lot for Sound Opinions. (laughs) Unconventional love songs, and by that we are not being judgmental in any way. We're just saying love songs with a difference. That's the idea. When we do these kind of shows, we flip the ceremonial Sound Opinions coin. For this special occasion, on one side we have none other than Barry White, the round mound of sound, (laughs) and on the other we have, who's on your side? Tom Jones. Oh, well, okay. Here it goes, and... It's Barry White. The round mound of sound. My goodness. We could just do a seven or eight hour show (laughs) on Barry White. Uh, But no, unconventional is the buzzword of this Valentine's Day show. We're going to talk about things a little left field. One of the first ones that sprung to my mind is this one I'm going to play by David Crosby. Got him fired from the birds, according to some accounts. Crosby wrote the song... Triad in 1967 wanted the birds to record it when he was still a member apparently this homage to a menage a trois turned off the other guys in the birds and they didn't want it to appear on the album Notorious Bird Brothers Crosby gave it to Jefferson Airplane who recorded it on Crown of Creation in 68 he later when he was part of Crosby Stills Nash and Young did it on a live album in uh, 71 but I'm going to play the version that the birds recorded but never released subsequently appeared years and years and years later on a way cool rarities collection called Never Before. Look, far be it for me to be judgmental. Whatever turns people on, I know this is a fantasy that a lot of men <laughs> apparently have, but there's a little bit something creepy as he's trying to sell this idea to his friend and his girlfriend. She apparently sees her mother at, at her shoulder saying, you know, don't do this. This is not what you learned in school. And Crosby is just, just keeps repeating, I don't really see why we can't go on as three. <laughs> I was like, okay, Dave, all right, whatever. But here it is, triad by the birds on Sound Opinions. You want to know how it will be me and her for you and me You both stand Like ice, a little bit colder 
Rock's most famous song about a menage a trois, Triad by the Birds on Sound Opinions. Mr. Cott, what do you got unconventional love song-wise? Way to get us off to a nice twisted start, Jim. I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to try to one-up you a little bit because there's been generation upon generation of love songs to vampires. Uh, mm. I think that gets a little twisted. You could get into the Halloween uh, tradition as well when you start listening to these songs. Well, you know, the Twilight thing is big with the kids right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there was a time period when, uh, obviously, Anne Rice novels were all the rage, and the song I'm going to play comes out of that period think about songs like the misfits vampira i mean mm. there's you know the ode to the the sexy vampire right outcast had a song on its speaker box the love below record called dracula's wedding mm-hmm. you know <laughs> where again you know there's you're not quite sure you want to go there but there's something really attractive yeah, yeah, yeah. about the uh, you know the underworld there and i think concrete blonde was uh, channeling this as well in the song bloodletting from their uh, 1990 album of the same name the lead singer in the band jeanette napolitano was conjuring that Anne Rice vibe. She set the song in New Orleans. There's a bit of a New Orleans voodoo vibe in this uh, cool blues beat that sort of sets the the moody gothic atmosphere. And, uh, you know, she doesn't camp it up. I mean, she's the way she sings this song and the way the atmosphere flows, you definitely get the sense that there's there's more going on here than just campy thrills. There's something erotic about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, and Anne Rice's novels did the same thing. They, they took it from sort of a camp horror movie, B-movie type of thing into this erotic zone that I think appealed to a lot of readers. So here's Concrete Blonde with Bloodletting on Sound Opinions. Love song to a vampire from Concrete Blonde. That's called Bloodletting. What do you got next, Jim? Well, I think we ought to stay in this uh, dark, mysterious, somewhat threatening vibe, Greg. A lot of songs about 
sadomasochistic relationships in rock history. There just are, okay? Again, no judgments. There's a million of them. But this is a really good song, and this is sort of the uh, granddaddy of them all. On the first Velvet Underground album, the band actually had taken its name from a cheap pulp paperback mm-hmm. about sadomasochistic rituals. Venus in Furs was the name of a more literary work, a novel by the Austrian author Leopold von Sacher Massach. <laughs> and uh, from whence comes masochism, okay? Lou Reed, as only Lou Reed can, has, uh, has tried just about everything out there. There in terms of drugs and sex by his own admission and in his songs. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather, this song <laughs> opens. Whiplash, girl child, in the dark. Clubs and bells, your servant, don't forsake him. Strike, dear mistress, and cure his heart. If that's your sort of thing, this is as good as it gets. Venus and Furs by the Velvet Underground. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather. Girl child in the dark Comes in bells Your servant don't forsake him Strive dear mistress And cure his heart Costumes she shall wear Ermine furs adorn Imperious Severin, Severin awaits you there Jim, we had to fight over that Velvet Underground song. I want everybody to know that is a classic song. I think that is Exhibit A. Yeah, that, that think about strange love songs. What does it say about us, though, <laughs> that as soon as we started talking about this show, I said, Venus and Furs. You said, no, I want Venus and Furs. Uh-oh. I don't know, but I think this is a close second. And it is also written by a master songwriter, John Lennon. 
when he was with the Beatles. I think this is at the very tip top of Lennon as the songwriter, as a surrealist, as a guy who could meld different ideas and create uh, great pop songs out of them. Happiness is a warm gun. Uh, A love song to a gun, or maybe not? We're not quite sure. We know that the imagery from the song was initially inspired by a National Rifle Association slogan cribbed from a magazine. Lennon saw those words, Mm. happiness is a warm gun, and he goes, my God, that is just (laughs) perverse genius. Because a warm gun is obviously one that has just been fired. Yeah. And there's all sorts of imagery in this song that relates guns to, you know, various phallic imagery and also hypodermic needles, you know, heroin abuse. Uh, Lennon had been known to dabble a little bit with, with heroin at the time. So obviously the song was banned on a lot of radio stations when, as soon as they heard it. So the whole idea of this perverse fascination with guns, also coming right on the heels of the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy in 1968 when the Beatles were doing the White Album for which this song was recorded, I think it was Lennon's commentary on the culture at the time. Four-part song, Lennon has described it in his own words as a uh, mini-history of rock and roll where he's moving through various styles, folk finger-picking, blues, hard rock, doo-wop, and again with that central image of happiness is a warm gun from the Beatles on Sound Opinions. She's not a girl who misses much Oh yeah She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane With the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy Working overtime A soap impression of his wife Which he ate and donated to the National Trust I'm going down, down to the bits that I left up town. I need a fix, cause I'm going down. Mother Superior jumped the gun. 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 Mother Superior jumped the gun Happiness is a Warm Gun by the great John Lennon and the Beatles on Sound Opinions. To give us your picks for an unconventional love song, call our hotline, 
888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. You can send your Valentine to Greg. We'll continue <laughs> our unconventional Valentine's Day show in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to a little bit of Queen's I'm in Love with My Car, which fits right in with our topic of the day, uh, just in time for Valentine's Day, unconventional love songs. Jim, it's your turn. Well, yeah, you know, Happiness is a Warm Gun started us on this love songs to inanimate objects portion of the show. I think Queen's I'm in Love with My Car continues it. My very favorite love song to uh, something that isn't actually alive is from Black Sabbath's Master of Reality album in 1971. I just think that this is back when these guys were poets. I mean, they were giants. This is a, <laughs> this is as sweet a love poem as I have ever heard. <laughs> My life was empty, forever on a down, until you took me, showed me around. My life is free now. My life is clear. I love you, sweet leaf, though you can hear. He's singing to a marijuana plant. And th- that subject is driven home by uh, Tony Iommi's echoed cough at the beginning of the song. Ozzy Osbourne is in love with his pot plant. I don't think it gets more beautiful than that on Valentine's Day. Here it is, Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath on Sound Opinions. <laughs>
you just gotta love the brilliance of Black Sabbath's Sweet Leaf. It is just so touching. And when he says, I love you, oh, you know it, you know? I could just see Ozzy passed out in his room with the black light on. <laughs> you know? <laughs> One of those velvet pot posters, you know, yeah. a giant leaf and it glows in the black light. It came to me in a dream. Oh, yeah. man. I'm going to offer a sinister bookend to that song, Jim, because that's a beautiful song. It is a beautiful song. And it is sort of benign, actually. There's something almost sweet about it, you know? It's it's Black Sabbath. I, I think back in the early 70s when it came out, it was viewed much more suspiciously by parents anyway, but the kids loved it. Of course. But I think in 1992, you had Alice in Chains coming along singing about the joys of heroin. And I think just sort of upping the ante a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Lane Staley, the lead singer of Alice in Chains, the Seattle grunge band, at the height of the grunge area, were selling uh, records by the bucket loads. In 1992, they put out an album called Dirt. And uh, Staley, infamously using heroin, uh, for a long time was an advocate for this drug, saying it was a necessary antidote to what he saw as a drab, boring, lifeless existence outside of uh, the freak zone, as he called it. What's my drug of choice? Well, what have you got? I don't go broke, and I do it a lot. Mm. (laughs) Uh, An advocate for heroin use on a record that ended up selling 4 million copies. Here is Junkhead from Alice in Chains, Lane Staley, singing about the love affair that he's carrying on with heroin on Sound Opinions. Junkhead from Alice in Chains, their 1992 album Dirt. Ten years later, the singer of that song and the author of those lyrics, Lane Staley, was himself dead at age 34 from heroin abuse. So uh, a cautionary tale, to say the least. Sometimes what you love can kill you. Yes, Greg, indeed. Love can be a destructive emotion, too. For my final pick on this show, uh, I don't actually think this is about loving your walls, but it is a song about agoraphobia, being trapped in a place, being afraid to go outside, and really having only the four walls as your companions and your lovers. It's a song by Lester Bangs, Mm -hmm. the great rock critic. I wrote his biography, personal hero of mine, and inspiration. I am limited, I think, by edict here at Sound Opinions to two or three mentions per year, but I'm actually going to play his music, so that's not really a mention, is it? (laughs) Uh, Lester 
had made two records in his lifetime. Only one came out before he died. It was called Juke Savages on the Brazos. It was made with some great musicians down in Austin, Texas. He was the singer. He wrote the lyrics. This is a very funny song. He had several friends who were suffering from agoraphobia. That is, you know, the fear of walking outside your apartment. Literally, you lose your breath. You, you, you begin to shake. Some people pass out. And uh, Lester thought this was very sad. He was going to write a novel called All My Friends Are Hermits. <laughs> we're all disconnected. We talk on the phone, even though we live two blocks from each other, but we don't get together. He spent much of his life chasing love. He never found it, uh, really. And I think that that's what the real subtext of this song is about. It's called I'm In Love With My Walls by Lester Bangs and the Delinquents on Sound Opinions. It's Friday, night night. just got paid. Phone me Bangs and the Delinquents, I'm in love with my walls on Sound Opinions. This is uh, the last pick of the day on our Valentine's Day special unconventional love songs. Mr. Cott, you got one to send us out? Yes, I do, Jim. In fact, a companion to David Crosby. You'd mentioned him earlier with the song Triad. There was a number of weird weirdos and eccentrics in that little uh, <laughs> group of uh, characters that were assembled there under the moniker of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. They say the 60s were a lot of fun. I guess. And uh, Neil Young is an example of an artist who uh, never ceases to amaze and also comes up occasionally with the surreal song that you just go, huh? What the <laughs> <Yeah>. heck? <laughs> 
Here's a song that appeared on his 1977 album, American Stars and Bars, and I still to this day play it with a a look of jaw-dropping fascination on my face. It is essentially a love song to a salmon. Um, (laughs) Much of it's sung while he's underwater, or at least it sounds like he's underwater when he's singing it. I've forgotten this one. This is about love-growing fins, Jim. Come on. This is one of the weirdest love songs ever written. It's called Will to Love. Seven minutes acoustic. It sounds like he's singing part of it underwater, as I said. Basically, he imagines himself as singing with his love, who's a salmon. And <laughs> they're swimming upstream against all these obstacles, because the salmons go upstream to spawn. Yeah, you know, yeah, they yeah. swim against the tide. It's a difficult journey. And love is a difficult journey in Neil Young's world. All right. uh, there's nothing more weird than this particular love song. I think it's a great way to go out on the unconventional love songs note. It is Neil Young, Will to Love, on Sound Opinions. La 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 It is often Wow, that is Neil Young, 
Will to love Neil Young as a salmon. Boy, oh boy. He's um, never afraid to go out on that limb and just saw right through it. Absolutely. Next week, Jim, we have another band that is going to, to address the subject of love and heartbreak, and they did it in spectacular fashion on their album from last year. Scottish band that is going to be in the studio for a live performance in an interview, Frightened Rabbit. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was brought to us by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. We love them all. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, a man whose love for the unconventional brought you this show, Tori Southside Malatia. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm calling you. New messages. Hello, this is Ben calling from Des Moines. And I was calling because I love Greg's Desert Island pick, uh, Well All Right by Buddy Holly. Uh, but I had to have to say, uh, when he said it was a track that inspired so much of uh, the 60s folk rock sound, etc. Uh, I thought it was going to be Listen to Me. Listen to me and hold me tight And you will see I'll also ride Hold me, darling Listen closely to me When I first heard that guitar and melody, I couldn't believe I wasn't listening to The Birds or, uh, or you know, The Beatles on, on Help or Rubber Soul or, or something like that. Well, all right, absolutely a, a great song as well, but uh, Listen to Me just happened to be the one that I heard. And, you know, I knew Buddy Holly wrote great rock and roll songs, but that was a track that convinced me of just how ahead of, a time, ahead of his time it was. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Hello, I'm Joseph Hans from here in Chicago. I really enjoyed your January 30th show on copyright law and new technology, and I generally agree with your positions. But I disagree with you on the intent of the samplers, at least some of them. A recognizable 19-second sample of the Ohio players singing in the morning is not only incidentally the Ohio players singing in the morning, that it's recognizably the Ohio players singing in the morning is precisely why it's being sampled. This is not about recycling a melody or chorus line or chord change or catchy riff or some other raw musical building block. This is about cashing in on a much more distinctive, personal, and finished product, the cultural resonance and celebrity of the Ohio players. And that's something that's worthy of acknowledgement and compensation. I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Bye. Hey guys, Kevin from Berkeley, California, 
and I'm calling to pay my respects to the recently deceased Lux Interior of the Cramps. My sister bought me bad music for bad people when I was 13, and it completely redefined punk rock for me. Before that moment, punk meant faster than fast, like no effects to the dead Kennedys. Songs like Garbage Man and, and Human Fly showed me that punk is at its gnarliest when it's slow and buzzed out. And, and what's this? No bass player? It's freaking mind-blowing. They're the proof that rock and roll is at its best when it avoids being conventional. John Spencer, the Gories, the Oblivion, they've all made careers out of what they've learned from the cramps. And, and really, the worst part about this is the fact that I took the band for granted and never saw them live. I mean, Lux wasn't Lemmy. I didn't feel the need to rush to see him before he kicked the bucket, which in Lemmy's case could happen at any moment. But now the closest I'll get to experiencing one of the world's greatest live acts is watching their videos on YouTube. Um, I'm again. I'm, I'm mourning this great loss, and to Lux's widow Ivy, there's millions of people out there who feel your pain and wish you the best. The king is dead. Long live the king. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline one eight eight eight. 859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.